Howdy folks, and welcome back to From Ms. Dot. In this episode, I'm joined by fellow Freedomcaster Samuel Vernon, host of the Conventional Wisdom Podcast, as we conduct a joint interview and navigate a fun conversation with author Gabrielle Bauer. We discuss her work, Blindside is 2020, and in today's artifact, I highlight some of the most interesting people, research, and events to which we refer during the interview. This is a ranging discussion, and I hope you enjoy what we have to say. Gabrielle was a good talk and a good sport, answering any question we put forward to her. So, without further ado, Samuel Vernon and Gabrielle Bauer. Hey, welcome to this exciting FreedomCast production between From Is to Ought and Conventional Wisdom. With us, we have an award-winning freelance writer of almost three decades who writes for both general audiences as well as medical professionals. Gabrielle, welcome to FreedomCast. My pleasure to be here on your show. Oh, thank you. So I'll kick it over to Sam, who's going to kind of tee up our conversation for today, and uh, hopefully we'll have an exciting exchange back and forth for the next 75 minutes, maybe hour and a half. Sam? Yeah. So, uh, Gabrielle, your book is Blindsight is 2020. That's the and one. I'll, I'll hold it up here. <laughs> that's the one. I have to be completely honest. I, I loved this book. I found myself, it was almost every single chapter, maybe even a couple of times a chapter, I would just stop reading and reflect on exactly what had been said. So just a quick background. Um, I'm the host of a conventional wisdom podcast. That's the name of my podcast. And I particularly enjoy sort of little nuggets of philosophical thought. And if it kind of it gets to the heart of something that um, to me makes a whole lot of sense and, and provides some amount of meaning and value there, it was it was just like every single every single one. And I, I kind of just want to tee it up and give a few examples because a few of them, I mean, I had to write them down because they were really, really good. So uh, and, I, and I can't remember exactly which which chapter this was because I was just sort of writing writing down. You had written, well, maybe I should first, maybe I should first give it an overview of your book and then you tell me if that's fair or not. So in your book, you, you highlight many different people from all sides of political aisles and different parts of society. And you, you highlight the story that they tell of COVID because it seems like you kind of, you tee up the book in that there's two sides what was presented to us and then maybe another side that didn't get enough maybe airtime or didn't get talked about enough. And so you talked through many different examples and gave many different examples of people who more or less told their side of the story. Is that somewhat fair? Do you want to add anything to that? Uh, sure. Yeah, I think that's, that's totally uh, fair. And I do want to add something in that a lot of books focus on the science of pandemic management and the science of COVID. And what I thought was missing from the very beginning, like literally from day one of the lockdowns, was the multidisciplinary perspective, because a pandemic is not just a scientific problem. This is one of my main theses. A pandemic is a human problem and you know, a problem of how do we steer the human family through this thing. It's a multifaceted problem. And so I thought it was very important to bring together, I mean, these are all dissenting perspectives, that's sort of the uh, premise of the book, but dissenting perspectives, not just from scientists, although there are plenty of those in the book, but also from 
philosophers and historians and mental health experts, quite a few writers as well, um, lawyers, economists, very important. And there's even a comedian and a priest, all of whom have important things to say. And plus, I, I weave my own story into it as well. Right. And actually, I mean, that's that's absolutely perfect, because one of the ones little nuggets of wisdom that I wrote down was that science is necessary, but never sufficient to create public policy. And I think that's yeah, one of the first yeah. things. That, I've I mean, been screaming this from the rooftop since literally March 2020, um, absolutely screaming it from the rooftops. And it, it always amazed me how few people seem to get it. You know, they seem to think that COVID was somehow the scientific puzzle and there, there was a correct solution, you know, as if that's how public policy and humanity and philosophy works. Right. And one of the examples that I had always heard to kind of highlight this idea was the idea that, you know, it was scientists who created the atom bomb, but it was not scientists who who said like how to where to detonate it, when and in what circumstances to use it. You know what I mean? I mean that's a, exactly. a little bit more morbid example, but yes. Yeah. You know, I have to say it really I find the title of your podcast, you know, from ought to is very interesting because again, one of my premises was well, the the, the no fee principle, no ought from is, uh, David Hume's principle that you know, he, he came up with this concept that you can't cross the line from is to ought. And science is an is area of inquiry. It just tells you what the facts are. And then public policy is an ought area of in, inquiry. It tells it uses the facts and then other human priorities and values and, and morals and social norms to uh, to fold that into public policy. Certainly. I was very intrigued when I saw you know, the name of your podcast. Yeah, it's a little tongue in cheek. Um, and ah. I think that's, uh, that'll become, it's something we've talked about in a previous interview, but it's, it'll become, I think, more obvious with the greater body of work that, you know, continues to come out. We do cover a lot of scientific research, or at least things flying under the banner, but it's typically consequential areas for either civic discussion or public policy making, And mm -hmm. You know, we try and look at both the philosophical angle as well as the, there are rubrics you can use to evaluate science. Not all science is equally credible. And so we try mm -hmm. to take both tools to to that. And then I think over the course of a body of podcasts, let's say maybe we can do a nice job demonstrating that uh, the ability to go from is to ought is, let's say, greatly constrained and requires other considerations. There are certainly, I think, mm -hmm. relatively simple uh, almost game-like examples where you can maybe go from a not to an is, but for something as consequential as uh, pandemic management, I don't, I would not put that in that category. Yeah, well, I th this would make a very interesting, you know, conversation over drinks sometime. But uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, yeah, fair what you're saying, but there's no straightforward path from is to odd for a pandemic is is how I would put it. Fair enough. Yeah, and I was I was going to bring that up because I think it's just a it's a win. When uh, Michael and myself, we heard of your your book and all this, I thought it was a perfect blend. Like, hey, why don't we both get on and an interview? Because of course, he has this from his to odd. And then I, I mean, like I said, I found so much wisdom in a lot of these um, chapters that you had. So I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Well, as a uh, as a starter, I thought we could just, you know, you could just go over what was your personal journey through COVID. I mean, what was your perceptions of this, like from the beginning? compared to what they might have been at the end and maybe like what had changed in there. So let's talk about that first a little bit. 
Sure. Well, I'm one of these people who didn't really change much. I had a visceral recoil against what was going on from day one, from hour one, when I heard the lockdowns were going to happen. I was actually in Brazil um, visiting friends that I had made um, a few years earlier, two years earlier when I lived there for five months. And, um, and that is exactly when the lockdowns were announced pretty much all over the world. And I scrambled to get home. I mean, part of me wanted to stay there and ride it out. I had a friend who offered to give me shelter in her home out in the woods for a month. And it was awfully tempting, but I didn't really want to do that to my husband. So I thought I better get home. And of course, our prime minister, uh, I live in Toronto. So Prime Minister Trudeau was saying all Canadians must come home because, you know, the flights are not going to go on forever. So I, I came home early. But yeah, as soon as the lockdowns were announced, I remember thinking, you know, on the same day, where are the economists? Where are the historians? Where are the mental health experts? Where are all these other people at the advisory table? They kept talking about the science advisory table, the science advisory table, as though, again, coming back to that theme, as though this were only a scientific problem. There was no discussion of costs. There was no discussion of cost benefit. There was no discussion of any of that. It was just the problem is managing the virus. Well, no, a pandemic is not just a virus management problem. So, you know, I also had this very emotional, very strong reaction against the policies. And I didn't really have the vocabulary at first to articulate it, even to myself. And I also find my, found myself very oddly and unexpectedly isolated in that most people in my circle which is kind of your boring, you know, middle class, perhaps left-leaning circles. Most people in my circle were just completely on board with this. And um, I was, I'm 66 years old now. I was 63 at the start of all this. So ostensibly, I was in an age range where I might be more inclined to be cautious and want to, you know, be on board with the policies. But no, not ever, not for a minute. Um, but I couldn't talk about it at first, because I found when I tried to, I got shut down, which was, again, a very new experience for me, because I've never really been on the outside of, you know, a broad public opinion to that degree. You know, thinking back, maybe I was, but never in, in such a dramatic way that affected me. So I tried to talk about it online. I remember, you know, when I got home from Brazil, I had to quarantine in my room in, in the basement for 14 days. And um, and my husband was a lot more afraid of COVID than I was at the beginning. You know, he was like, downstairs, six feet. So I went to the basement. I didn't have much to do. So I went online and I, I tried to tentatively and I think respectfully and politely articulate some of my concerns. And not only was I shut down, but like the the invective, the epithets that were thrown at me, I'd never seen anything like that. You know, I, I got called a sociopath. I got called a mouth-breathing Trump tard. I got called, you know, negative IQ, village idiot, neck beard. I mean, you name it. And as I say, in all my then 63 years, I had never, ever, ever been called any of those things. So it was it was just very new. And it was right. It just completely shocked me because I wasn't saying I wasn't at all going into conspiracies like Zero. I have zero conspiratorial bones in my body, as you might discover if you read my book. It's just not the way my mind um, works. So 
I was just deb debating the um, the philosophy, the ethics um, of the policies, and people were telling me go lick the virus. It was, you know, it was just the wild west. I could not believe it. And so it took me about six weeks, I would say, before I gathered up the courage to start talking about it to people I knew. And um, and eventually, uh, you know, I had a very strong need to find like-minded people just to discuss all this with and to, to try to figure out what it was that was bothering me. I mean, we can certainly get into all that later. And eventually I did find those people. I found wonderful communities online. Um, notably this uh, lockdown skepticism subreddit group. I remember, I, I guess it was in late April, I just Googled literally opposed to lockdown, something like that. And then this subreddit popped up, which at the time only had about 2,000 members. Uh, it has 55, it's stabilized at 55,000 for the past you know year or two. And um, it's still active, not as much as in the heyday, of course, but it's still active. I became a moderator in September 2020, and I joke sometimes that I'm probably the world's oldest Reddit moderator because Reddit tends to skew young. But, you know, we had a, a great mod team. I've met some of them in person. And um, and then through that, we started inviting people for Q&As. Um, that's, that's what Reddit groups do. So we invited some giants, really, in the counter-narrative side, people like um, Jay Bhattacharya, Vinay Prasad, Mark Changizi, Matthias Desmet, etc., etc. And I got to know these people. As a moderator, I would participate in the Zoom calls as we were setting up the um, Q&As and got to talk to them personally. And I actually met some of them in person later. And this was a, a huge silver lining and a huge treat. I got to meet these giants. And um, you know, all, that really helped. Uh, and I also actually founded a group in Toronto uh, called QLIT, Questioning Lockdowns in Toronto. Um, again, this was all very organic. It was just born of a, a very strong need in this atmosphere to connect with like-minded people, to, to kind of prove to myself, no, I'm not crazy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I formed this group and in our, at our, peak we had well over 100 people and we had a whatsapp chat that literally never slept we had 500 to 1000 messages per day you know middle of the night whatever there was obviously a strong need for this kind of communication we also had in-person meetups we also attended some protests together which again i'd never done in my life i'd never been an activist i'd never been to a single protest but somehow the the sense of bewilderment and despair was so strong in me that this all happened naturally and organically. Yeah, I am immediately reminded um, as you were talking through that. I mean, that was almost, I wouldn't say exact, but that was my experience as well. As far as like the isolation goes, like from the absolute beginning, I was super skeptical of this whole thing. I had no idea why everybody was reacting the, the way they were. And it took me such a long time to sort of figure out, you know, piece, piece everything together in my mind as far as, you know, what's going on here? Why am I opposed to this and whatnot? Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because you said that you were got, you got called a lot of stuff and uh, very isolated from, from uh, those close to you. I mean, I, Mike can attest I had, we had a, a friend sort of like almost yell at me because of something that I had uttered. Um, and I, I didn't mean it for anything bad, but it, it was received poorly. 
And even I even have a close relative who had basically said, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer, even though, you know, I'm, I'm vaccinated and with, yeah. with, with other stuff. So it's like, like, no, I'm not. But as I was reading um, your book, the, the, the similarities here, uh, I was, I was so, I was so much appreciated uh, <laughs> or appreciative of, right. of what you shared. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I should clarify though, that um, uh, what were you just saying before about, no, it wasn't about anti-vaxxer. Oh yes, it was about you were saying that people close to you, or, or saying that people close to me responded in this way. It wasn't actually people who knew me; it was people online. People who knew me, I came to find, um, while they, a lot of them disagreed with me. None of them shunned me. I was lucky enough not to lose any relationships. I think maybe it's because I actually did get vaccinated several times for, for the COVID vaccine. That wasn't my hill to die on. Um, you know, I, I came to be very much against the mandates, and especially as I spoke with bioethicists for the book. But it's just my personal nature. I don't tend to worry about health issues as much as some people. I didn't worry about COVID. I didn't worry about the vaccines. It's like, okay, sure, whatever. I'll do it. You know, it wasn't a big deal for me either way. And um, so I think if I had actually, you know, drawn that as my line in the sand, I might have lost uh, personal connections. As it stood, I would say that no, none of my personal friends or relatives or, or even business associates uh, shunned me. And in fact, a few of my clients uh, bought my book and, um, you know, I still have them as clients. So that's good. Uh, but people online, yeah, completely off the charts rude and insulting and mm -hmm. yeah and unfortunately that's probably not a new phenomenon for covid and probably is not going to end as covid wanes but uh it's uh sad nonetheless that that is the state of things um i should also square one thing before we keep moving forward your book is primarily focused on these kind of dissenting voices as you said it's in a series of what i would consider kind of case studies and profiles, um, like a recounting, a retrospective of, of the for these people and the positions they held, but it's particularly about lockdowns. That's a, a primary emphasis, I would say. Is that fair? Um, I, I agree to some extent. I actually did a word count okay. on the three pillars of the policies, namely lockdowns, masks, and vaccines. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the figures anymore because it was some time ago, you know, but lockdowns was, you know, I don't know, maybe 211 you know, masks were was 186 mentions and um, vaccines were maybe 122, something like that, something like yeah. that ratio. So uh, I agree that the lockdowns are probably primary, um, but I do also address the mask issue, you know, some of the uh, controversy around that, as well as the uh, not so much vaccine efficacy i stay away from that right. and i have my reasons but the vaccine the mandates the ethics right. of the mandate yeah and that's the through line is the the top down imposition yeah. okay yeah. sam had brought up asking kind of your personal journey through covid i have a a little bit more precise question when did you first hear about the emergence of a novel coronavirus from wuhan china probably right at the end of 2019 Okay. Do you remember where? Because that's I would say that's at least three to four months earlier than most people. It's probably about the same time Sam and I heard about it. But yeah, I, I mean, I can't actually recall exactly, but it was around then or the very beginning of 2020 in Toronto. Mm. I was in Toronto. Okay. 
Uh, here in the states, there's a big Chinese community here, Mm. and so there was already some talk in the news about it. Yeah. So I I think it was around then. Okay, that would make sense. The um, the stuff in the states going, we had actually had uh, Democratic presidential primaries at the time, and uh, there was actually a debate between late 2019 and kind of the mainstream kind of social uptake of awareness. And I don't believe they even asked a single question about the virus at that time. And I think that's reflective of the of two things. One, that there was a general kind of, igno- you know, understandable, but a general ignorance about the epidemiological goings on abroad. And the, and there's reasons for that. And I think that probably if we were to go back and do a, an accounting for why the three of us maybe knew three to four months ahead of at least mainstream adoption here in the States. I suspect you'd find a similarity that you'd find in your book, which is that we are not, our information silos are not gated such that we exclude heterodox voices from the conversation. I, I can remember the specific cultural commentator slash journalist slash controversial figure um, from who I first heard about the virus. His name is Mike Cernovich. And he's, you know, again, he's controversial, like no question, but also empirically what he said at the time was prescient. It was going to be a huge issue and there was going to be enormous economic implications. And and likewise, um, because of people like doctors, Amish, I think I'm gonna get this right. Aladoja and uh, Vinay Prasad, who you, you mentioned in the book, there were some heterodox voices that were also saying, Hey, Yes, this carries some risk, some non-trivial risk in terms of health outcomes, but it's nowhere near early projections in terms of uh, mortality. It, it, you know, yeah. could have been somewhere between half and a full order of magnitude less than what we had initially thought. And that's, you know, when you're making public policy, you would think that that those error bars on that estimation and and kind of from the statistics point of view, getting the, that variance as tightly constrained as possible, uh, as early as possible is important. I think that's completely true. I agree 100%. But I think this this idea of a precautionary principle took over. And I, I you know, one of the chapters in my book is, is devoted to, to that. And um, one of the bioethicists that I interviewed said that the pandemic policy was an abuse of the precautionary principle. And I, I liked the way he termed that. You know, I did a bit of research into the precautionary principle. I think it has some usefulness, but only for a, a limited amount of time. So for the listeners, could you maybe, because that's actually one of the questions Sam and I have teed up here very shortly was to ask you about this abuse of the precautionary principle. I thought that was well articulated in the book, Um, but could you tell the listeners what the precautionary principle is just roughly and then why this individual kind of thought it was taken in excess? Okay. Well, um, as far as, you know, I don't don't know if I'm going to quote the exact definition, but basically the precautionary principle is about situations where there is a high degree of uncertainty uh, about the future and where the worst case scenario is very dire. So when you have those two things, high degree of uncertainty and a very calamitous worst case scenario, then you err on the side of the worst case scenario when designing policy, just because it is so extreme. And because there is a high degree of uncertainty, you can't really say with any level of certainty, well, this worst case scenario is not going to happen. So in those kinds of situations, according to that philosophy, it makes sense to design um, policy very, very cautiously um, with that worst case scenario in mind. So I think it is reasonable 
perhaps to say, okay, this makes sense for two weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months, you know, maximum, when we really don't know. But after that, I mean, arguably even before two months, you know, we really started to know a lot about the risk stratification of this virus. And we started to know that, as you were saying, um, the actual risk was, you know, perhaps an order of magnitude less. And we started to know much more about the vulnerable groups, you know, and it also became clear. I mean, the, the sort of principle of exponential rise is obviously self-limited because there's only so many people around to carry that exponential curve. So, you know, once we started to gather that knowledge, um, it was time to dial down that, ex that um, precautionary principle and invoke the principle of proportionality which is the response should be proportional to the threat, you know, and to the most likely threat, not to the sort of outer reaches of, you know, extreme worst case scenario. But we didn't do that, certainly in Canada. I know that it varied a lot in the States from state to state and region to region. But in some countries like Canada, it was just interminable. You know, we had three lockdowns and the last one lasted six months and all kinds of um you know, micromanaging regulations about who and where we could stand and do it, just interminable. So, and in a lot of other parts of the world as well. So there wasn't really an exit ramp and there wasn't planning for an exit ramp and there wasn't communication about an exit ramp. Like, hmm. you know, the, the political leaders were not doing their job as far as I and people of my persuasion were concerned. They were not saying, okay, this is how we plan to get off. This is when we plan to get off. You know, they weren't giving people that hope at all. It was just an abundance of caution this, an abundance of caution that, you know. Mm -hmm. And why why do you believe that is? Well, I think if you're going to dial, sort of zoom back and look at culture, I think uh, several observers of the cultural scene have noted that we are moving progressively and have been moving toward a safety culture, whereby the value of safety, you know, has increased in proportion to other values. You know, there's that safety versus freedom seesaw, the eternal seesaw, and safety just keeps getting more and more and more important. And I'm certainly not against safety. You know, I'm a parent. I certainly was as neurotic as other parents about my kids' safety. But at the same time, COVID really, you know, made me think deeply about that whole safety versus freedom paradigm. And I realized that I put an extremely high value on freedom. And, you know, I really thought deeply about what freedom actually meant in a society. And it bewildered me that so few people seem to share this high valuation. Uh, safety seems just to be the highest value for people, for many people these days. And then there's also the whole issue, which is very complex and controversial, just about um, the, the role of age in shaping policy. You know, it's a very contentious issue, but you know, this idea that young people should just set aside their whole lives in order to possibly, not even certainly, help the oldest people of society who already lived their lives to help them you know, live a few months or a couple of years longer that seems to be a a value that has emerged in the past, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years or so. Hmm. 
And that really got cemented during COVID. And I think some of us also just had a real problem with this, this worldview. I remember reading recently in an article about this, somebody said, well, everyone was talking about the young people's duty toward the old, but nobody was talking about old people's duty toward the young, you know, which I found interesting. And, you know, ostensibly, as I said, I'm in the old people category. I don't feel old, you know, unfortunately, I'm in fine health, but on paper, but I, I still am very, very much of the mindset that we owe, we owe the younger generation a debt to make sure that they get to enjoy what we enjoyed. And it really irked me to think that so few people seem to care about this. It was only, you know, we, we've got what I call metabolic life. We've got to keep metabolic life going for as long as possible and as many people. And, and this is something that was articulated by one of the philosophers that I feature in the book, um, Giorgio Agamben a very well-known and illustrious Italian philosopher who was in his 70s when this started. And um, what I call metabolic life, he calls bare life. And he also somehow was really bothered by this overemphasis on bare life, as though we humans are just put on earth to, you know, to keep our engines going as long as possible, irrespective of how we connect and communicate and, and what we do, you know. So, you know, again, these are these are hard things to talk about with other people, but I think that society has been moving in this direction um, for a generation, and COVID just accelerated that process and cemented that process. And then I think some of us were really troubled by it. Okay, so that's that's great. I actually have two quick thoughts um, about what you just said and in, in your one of your previous points. So I'll start with the the latter there. Uh, you talked about how there was no kind of reflection at the public policymaking level to incorporate new information, some of which, not all, but some of which was available relatively early in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would like to highlight to make a case for the people who do this kind of scientific reasoning in terms that would appeal to them, and this kind of general framework of decision making under uncertainty, or to some extent, the broader concept of risk management, not specific to epidemiology necessarily. You have to account for both the potential magnitude of downside. Uh, for which individuals are more sensitive than equal magnitude upside. There's just this downside yes. evolutionary bias, mm -hmm. uh, which is understandable. Uh, but you have to, you have to, you need a Bayesian updating process for both the the range of possible outcomes. So that's one thing. What you'd mentioned there was also the probability associated with any one of those outcomes. So it's it's both of these things that require constant reflection and awareness. And the the true risk, you know, there is tail risk in in many complex systems. But one thing that I have this intuition that is likely to increase tail risk is the premature suppression of dissenting voices because you keep the unknown unknown for longer and that has mm. potential consequences. So that's one point. And uh, well, I'll stop there actually. It, do you have any comments on that? That's an interesting, I, I like the way you phrased it, you know. Uh, yes, it makes it makes a lot of sense. You you keep the unknown unknown for longer. That's perfect. And um, I mean, the information was out there, but it wasn't actively communicated. Right. And um, because of that, the public was under some some pretty extreme misapprehensions about risks. You know, mm -hmm. you might have seen some of the early surveys that they did where people thought, you know, mm -hmm. 
a 10% chance I'm going to die of COVID if I get it, if I'm, you know, over 40 or ridiculous stuff like that. Um, the media completely dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did not do their job in communicating risk and they did not do their job in pushing back against the um, policymakers narrative, so, you know, which is the media's job, which is to to push back. And that's how you get at the truth. So, yeah. So the second point you made about was about this seeming contradiction. We have a relatively reasonable appreciation about the fact that younger generations have an obligation to elder generations. But in this context, perhaps we didn't have a commensurate appreciation of the inverse. I'll say there is one pretty controversial here in Texas. Texas politician who did make that case very early. Dan on. Andrews. Dan yeah. Andrews. Did you say and, Dan Andrews? Yeah. Yeah. I thought, was, thought but was. yeah, but at the same time, you know, you talk about the safety culture thing, and you know, I'm thinking of of Heights work and as well as some others. You know, the safety culture, my impression is that it's not being driven by the elder generation, typically. So those for whom the principle of for what you're espousing, which is, well, maybe the older generations have an obligation to the younger because it's not purely just about um, maximizing the number of life years, regardless of quality of life. And I know that you have some uh, perhaps misgivings with uh, the way that quality of life has been measured historically um, or some extensions to it, maybe let's say, yeah. but but those on whose behalf you would seemingly be advocating, i.e. the younger generation, mm-hmm. my impression is they're also the generation most likely to be absorbed in a disparate delusion that safety is the primary the only primary consideration yeah i i agree and um you know there's there's been a lot written about that you know why is today's younger generation you know why have they lost their moxie their mojo their metal their whatever whatever their sense of rebellion uh you know the the best-selling book that Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff about the coddling of the American mind. I think that has something to do with it. Um, This idea of safe spaces, safe this, safe that, you know, trigger words, trigger warning, you know, the whole campus culture, cancel culture. One thing that I read recently, and I actually, I agree with it, even though I'm a woman, it's actually a woman who said this, I think it was Mary Harrington, Two of my favorite uh, female thinkers right now, Mary Harrington and Kathleen Stock, one of them said that um, cancel culture is a reflection of the fact that we have more women in position of power. Because the the male way of dealing with conflict, certainly as children, you know, the, the boys just get into a mud wrestling fight in a schoolyard. Whereas the female way of de- dealing with conflict is more runs more towards shunning. You're not our friend anymore, that kind of thing. And I think that there's some there's there's definite truth to that. You know, to what extent it's it's baked in biologically or learned, I can't say. But I think it's very it really resonated for me. And I think that this whole idea of canceling dissent in the way that it's done today is somehow connected to, you know, having more females in power. I'm certainly not against having more females in power. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the there's something in there. And yeah, uh, I think I have, sorry to cut you off. I think they because I think I've re- I, I, I heard about this. And I forgot who it was who said it, but it was the um, the idea that 
they deal with conflict by character assassination, mm. you know, starting rumors right at school. Yes. Yes. Um, and that almost directly translates to trying to get someone canceled. Exactly. Right? You don't hear their side. You don't mm. duke it out. You just cancel them. And so it seems that this has driven a lot of young people, you know, just to toward a certain conformity mm. of views. I've talked to my kids extensively about this too. Uh, fortunately for me, both my kids were, uh, are very much on my side when it comes to this. And I can have wonderful conversations with them, you know, no holds barred about all these issues. And I know my daughter told me something about on campus, there is now a culture, which some people might think is a great thing. It just that the highest value is just uh, be kind, be good. But at the expense of free thought, you know, and that's a very heavy price to pay. So I think a lot of young people get so caught up in that, which didn't really exist when I was growing up and going to school and all that in university. It wasn't really a thing. I mean, yes, of course, all of us are, are, you know, encouraged to be good, but it wasn't just institutionalized in the same way that it is today. And that's what you told me. And, I've, and again, that rang true that this is just hammered into today's young people. And um, campuses tend to skew very progressive as well. And there's that progressive ideology, you know, that we've all been steeped in, that young people have all been steeped in. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's all connected somehow. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I, it's one of the things that I resonated so much with your writing and, and for everything you said in there, because uh, I, there was another little bit that I wrote down to make sure that I remembered it because you had mentioned that compliance to the collective does not equal compassion. And mm-hmm. I have this whole, I have this whole rant that I'm not going to go into now <laughs> about this whole compassion thing. I think it's a, it's, you know, it's a veiled something and there's much more hidden underneath there than what's on the surface. Well, there's per- uh, performative compassion versus true compassion. And I think we saw a lot of performative compassion. And that's what mm-hmm. we are seeing. You know. Oh, yeah. Right. And um, so I wanted to hop in uh, a little bit further down. There's, because um, I know in my attempts to figure out what all went wrong, um, at least with the response to the virus, I know that I got twisted and kind of tied down when I tried to maybe suggest or hint that, hey, even if these lockdowns um, are, even if we, you know, the lockdown aren't, they're, they're not worth it simply because even if we had more cases of COVID, yeah, some people might die. And yes, that's a thing, but that's not really the, the end goal that we should be striving for. And in your book, you had, you dedicated a chapter and I can't remember the names, apologies, but you had de- dedicated a, a chapter to some economists who had maybe put a value and was able to actually like maybe quantify or at least talk about say like, yeah, no lockdowns are not worth it. And even if it does cost some lives, like here's the numbers to it. So I, I wanted you to just to speak about that. Yeah, that was that was really interesting um, to me as well. Uh, yes, uh, there's a chapter um, in, in which I feature two economists. One of them is a very well-known British economist who helped develop the Wellby system, W-E-L-L-B-Y. Um, usually the way that traditionally health economists measure um, life is by the quality, right? Quality adjusted life years. So they evaluate whether an intervention is worthwhile 
based on the number of qualities it saves, you know, quality adjusted life years it saves and, and how much it costs. And there's certain benchmarks. If it costs more than a certain amount per quality, then it is not considered um, a worthwhile intervention. But the way that the quality is calculated in this measure is, is really more or less just health. If you're in good health, you get a you know, high coefficient for quality. And if you're in poor health, you get a low coefficient. So it's fairly crude. Whereas Welby um, goes beyond that and acknowledges, first of all, that quality of life and health may be related, but they are not in lockstep. Some people can have poor health and have a good quality of life and vice versa. And so it gives priority and primacy just to experiences, life experiences, because life is really a collection of experiences. And so there are experiences um, that bring happiness, joy, contentment, um, excitement, whatever, those get more well-be points uh, than those that do not. And it's actually a you know fairly sophisticated measure that's been very well developed in the UK and used in other parts of the world too. There's a whole literature based on well-be measurements as opposed to quality measurements. And so using well-be as you know the measurement tool, he showed how lockdowns really lowered quality, true quality of life for people to a, a great alarming extent. And these are years and experiences that people can't really get back. Uh, you know, this is really what life is made of. And um, the biomedical model of life just doesn't acknowledge that. You right. Know? I, I completely agree. And maybe, maybe this, maybe you've already answered this, but um, again, you had, you'd theorized somewhere that you, you'd, you'd posed a thought experiment, this experiment essentially, where you said, you know, if, if the government basically kept us locked down yet still provided everything that we needed to our doorstep, be it health or entertainment or whatever it would be, you thought people would still rebel. Now, I wonder why you think that and maybe what does that say to, I don't know, this might be getting too philosophical, but, <laughs> but what does that say to maybe the meaning of life and like wh how should people be living it? Well, I think what I said specifically is that if the government said, okay, we'll provide everything, let's say for the next 20 or 50 years, but mm. you have to be locked down, would people go for it? Mm. I think it's very, very unlikely they would. Mm. Um, so whether they admit it or not, most people do recognize um, intuitively that life is not just about maximizing the number of years that your body stays alive. Uh, or if you told people, okay, you can, you're going to live five years longer, but you have to spend the rest of your life in jail. Most people would say no. So we do recognize that life is about more than just years. And that's why it was so frustrating to see that this was jettisoned uh, during COVID, this knowledge that we have always had. Um, I'm still, you know, I, I'd still, I don't know if you have an answer. I still don't have a full answer. I think fear has a lot to do with it. For some reason, fear just gripped the world. Uh, and then groupthink, you know, the two go together. And then once you have fear and groupthink, you have moralizing. And, and somehow that toxic brew, it just led to this monolithic focus on, you know, on one strand of pandemic management, which is containing the virus. 
Yeah, you definitely got that in there. Um, I I just remember thinking through this whole thing, like people are allowing fear to completely rule their life. And I, I don't I know that in my because I covered I covered COVID on one of my episodes. It was one of the first episodes that I had done for my podcast. And it took me such a long time just to figure out what, you know, what was the root cause. And I think you had mentioned this t- about this much earlier that it, it, it boiled down to the, to the, um, safety versus freedom versus mm-hmm. liberty type yeah. uh, argument. And, you know, you had mentioned that everybody was going in the direction, or at least societally, we are going into the direction of a safety culture. I mean, that's just what it is. Attribute yeah. that to what you will. And I, I spent a while kind of thinking about this, and I just want your thought on this. This is not really a question directly about your book, but I, I had a thought as my answer to this whole thing, to that whole seesaw of liberty versus safety. Mm-hmm. I had an answer to this, and I just want to hear your thoughts on it. Um, <clears throat> if safety uh, was our primary concern, it was our highest value, value, if that were the case, then you could not have freedom because you, you'd be locked down. And um, you would just be maximizing the number of lives and you couldn't do anything. Right. However, if you allowed liberty or freedom to be your highest value, you still could, you had the freedom to achieve the level of safety that you would want, whatever it may be. If you want to live in, you know, a saran wrapped, whatever uh, existence and Lysol everything, you mean you are completely free to do so. So I viewed it as if, Mm -hmm. if, if liberty is, at the tip top of this value pyramid, then you also can have safety, but it cannot be the other way around. So I just want to know your thoughts on that. Oh, I mean, I agree with you fundamentally. Uh, I share that value and worldview. I think to play devil's advocate, the other side would probably say that, well, it is not fair to um, create conditions that force the, the more cautious people to live in a bubble. You know, and the only way that you allow them to escape that bubble is we all have to work together to stop the spread. And if we all do, then, you know, we can escape the bubble. So I think that's probably how the other side would present the case. Oh, believe but, me, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, I think that this this that that brings up the whole idea of collectivism, which is another thing that I thought about really deeply during the, the whole pandemic. You know, that's a collectivist idea. We all have to work together. And I think that that idea has some validity, but just like the precautionary principle, it has an expiry date. You know, and the reason it has an expiry date is that ultimately people are not the same. They don't have the same priorities. Um, They don't have the same personal balance in their seesaw of uh, freedom versus safety. So just telling everyone, okay, because we want to make, you know, the world more comfortable for the more cautious people, we all have to do this. Well, you are disrespecting the values of people who are more risk takers. You are just telling everyone that they have to operate according to the values of the most cautious people. So I, you know, I don't think that that's fair um, or right or a given. So yeah, I fundamentally do agree with you. And and also, yes, uh, I mean, we don't have complete control over our safety, but if someone really wants to stay safe, yes, they can avoid social functions. They can wear 15 masks, you know, it might help a little bit. They can um, organize their lives around that. 
But to me, again, everyone was saying it was selfish to want to do this and do that and go out and not wearing masks. But to me, the most selfish thing is expecting other people to conform to your level of fear and to your values. And I think it was Oscar Wilde, who I quote in the book, who said, selfishness is not living um, as you want. It is expecting others to live as you want. And I really believe that. And that was missed. You know, the, the, the idea was that anyone, the people who wanted escape from these restrictions were selfish. Well, no, not in my way of thinking. It was the people who expected other people to live according to their um, value system and priorities who were selfish. Because the, the fact of the matter is, is that we don't all have the same value systems and priorities. Um, mm, right. And I think, yeah. And then again, right, because you can't answer you can't, I think, I believe that you cannot answer that question, the value versus liberty question without having a, a, a answer to what's the purpose of life. Because those who would say safety is above all else, you're, you know, you're going to have to wrestle with, okay, then, you know, what is the purpose here? What are we doing? Right. Like why? Yes, exactly. Like zero times infinity is still zero. So if there's no purpose outside of safety, what's the purpose of multiplying that safety? You know, and I know, again, I'm working on some other essays about this. And I know that Einstein, for instance, refused treatment um, when he reached a certain age and um, something having to do with his vascular system. I don't remember exactly what, but some kind of surgical treatment. And he said, you know what? I've lived enough. I've accomplished enough. He said something about it's it's unseemly or greedy to just um, ask that my life be continued forever. And, and it, you know. To me, that made so much sense, but for some reason, um, people don't really appreciate that in today's world. I think partly because of technology. We have the technology now to extend people's lives in the way that we didn't before. And so there's this idea, well, if we can, we should. You know, and I've been reading people who push back against this idea, but it's still very pervasive. And, you know, I work in healthcare writing, medical writing. So I'm very, very well aware of where this is all going. You know, we have drugs now, and I write about these drugs that cost literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Some of them are one-time treatments, some of them, you know, two or three. And and they end up extending, let's say, the lives of people with advanced metastatic cancer for maybe three months. And this is considered we're going in that direction that this is considered a good use of healthcare dollars when there's so many other un- unaddressed priorities, you know, there's people living on the street and for some reason our, t- our society tolerates that and yet considers it so important <coughs> to extend the physical life of people who are clearly at the end anyways, when there's so many opportunities in my view to have very rich, meaningful um, psychological and spiritual experiences with your loved ones, but instead people are just shoved onto this conveyor belt of this treatment, that treatment, this treatment, that treatment. And it was just something very odd about all of this. But I think technology tends to drive a lot of these these mores and morals. You know, the technology is there, and so the morality changes. I think we're seeing a lot of that. And I think that all got mixed up in, into COVID as well. It's interesting you mentioned the technology route. I'm uh, 
my career field is information systems and analytics. So that's my crowd, <laughs> right? More <laughs> or less. And fair enough on the, you know, considerations for resource allocation. But I don't even think that it's a, I'm not, I'm not of the perspective that it's an economic equation because I don't view the remedy as one of technology. I think it's remarkable the amount of technological progress we've made, uh, certainly across human history, but especially in the last, let's say, a couple hundred years. And the pursuit of extending uh, well-being and high-quality lives is good. I don't think anyone's disagreeing with that. But you know what? Just if I may interject, we're not yeah. actually extending quality very much. We are extending people's dying years. We are sure. not making them younger or more vital or more able to do things. So that's right. very different from actually um, slowing down aging. Sure. Well, there there are people working on both. But yes, yes, I see what you're saying. Right. With these, the example you gave with these metastatic cancer treatments, I, yes. I take your point. Um, it's arguably too late to intervene on that yes. on that front. But I, I don't know if you can separate the two. I mean, certainly within one's own mind, you can. I don't know if it, in the way that uh, healthcare research gets funded, if you can separate the two and say, you're only going to be able to focus on extending life in insofar as it meets these parameters. And we're going to focus only on those who have well-being. We can extend the well-being aspect, not just overall you know, treatments. And that's, you know, researchers have their different priorities and areas, specialties, yeah. or expertise rather. But the reason I mentioned that I don't think it's a, a technological problem is it relates to some another question we kind of have teed up here, which is on the spiritual side of things. You know, Sam was talking about the philosophical big question of, you know, what's the purpose of life? But in your book, you mentioned, I believe that you're an atheist. Um, and yet you you do profile uh, Father Raymond D'Souza. And obviously, you know, being up in Canada, you're, I'm sure, aware of Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky. Yeah. And yeah. it seems to me, and, and if you reject this premise, feel free to say say so and, and love to hear why. But it seems to me there was a particular fidelity with top-down enforcement as it interfaced with religious practice that it didn't interface with in other aspects of life. And I don't, I personally don't think that's an accident. I don't think it's a conspiracy either. I think it's what you would predict in a technocratic state that kind of devalues mm. the um well the good the true and the beautiful from my catholic perspective but in any case do you agree that there was a particular do, do you also have the sense there's a particular emphasis on this and if you do why do you think that was again i think it comes down to that biomedical model that we have been moving towards a biomedical model of life we are a bag of bones and you know let's let's keep the apparatus around the bones going but it's interesting what you say about religion, although I'm not, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, I consider myself somewhere between atheist and agnostic if there's, you know, if there's that in-between point. Sure. I'm, I'm certainly not religious, like my mind is is just wired to doubt, even to doubt my own, you know, if I have a sort of temporary idea, oh, you know, there's got to be something out there, I, I doubt that too. It's like, oh, this is just my biology talking, that's just the kind of mind I have. But having said that, um. COVID really helped me understand the religious perspective in a way that I hadn't before, even though I don't share it. So that, that was interesting. Uh, you know, as a case in point, which I discuss in the book, was the Hasidic Jews in both New York and in Israel who just rebelled against the whole thing and said, I will not comply. And um, I have a partly 
uh, I'm mostly Jewish background, partly Orthodox. I mean, I didn't grow up with that, but my mother came from an Orthodox background and she was actually a Holocaust survivor. And um, my father was half Jewish and very secular. So she moved away from that while he was alive. So I have some cousins in Israel who are Orthodox and I never really related at all to the Orthodox worldview. It was opaque and, and just strange to me. But then when COVID came along and these Hasidic Jews were, were saying they were, were not going to comply, and I, I read a little bit about why, and somehow, again, I, I just understood that it all came down to worldview. They just didn't share this idea that, you know, we are all atomized um, entities that must be kept going. Like their idea of the community is that the community is what keeps their children healthy. You know, that one of the rabbis, religious rabbis that was quoted in an article that I read just said exactly that, that we believe that studying Torah in a group is what protects our children. So, you know, while I didn't share the literal sentiment, I did understand. He was saying, oh, wait a minute, like we just simply do not share your worldview. We're just on a different plane here. You know, and, and some of the Amish people and some of the Christian uh, people as well, like the priest that I feature in, uh, you know, Canadian priest that I feature in my book, same thing. It's just a different way of looking at the world. And somehow I really connected with that in a way that I hadn't before. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that there was, my suspicion is that because some of those who practice a more devout faith philosophically are predisposed to acknowledge a subservience to some higher power, they have a specificity about what that higher power is. The myomedical establishment or establishments, because it's not really just one thing, but those who have a more technocratic worldview, and, and there are some virtues to that um, socially as well as interpersonally, but those who have that, it's not always clear to me that they have the specificity to say what the higher power they acknowledge is. They might say something like reason or science or the scientific method, but but as those things were derived across cultures and across histories, they were also subservient. They were tools, not ends. And the religious communities have ends. Yeah, or, or another way of putting it, I think, yeah, those tools, you know, science, reason, all that, they're kind of contingent and always evolving, whereas the religion, religious perspective is more absolute. You know, there are some, there's something unchanging here that we are paying homage to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting how, you know, again, I, I really, one of the people that I really admired um, and that I feature in the book as well, Daniel Hadass, he's religious, he's Catholic, he's also a scholar of ancient uh, literature and Latin. And, um, you know, he, he talks about this as well, just how, you know, the COVID response, he talked about it as a, he, he said it was a spiritual um, exercise, ultimately. Mm. It was a spiritual trial, and I really believe that it was. It just, under underneath all the science, this and that, it was, it was really a, yeah, a spiritual practice, and, and those of us, who, who somehow were uncomfortable with this. It led us into all kinds of interesting um, discoveries about political philosophy and religion and and all these things. So yeah. that's definitely a, a big silver lining to the whole thing. I don't know if it has been for you, but also meeting all these wonderful people. Sure. Um, you know, including yourselves, you know, talking uh, about it, writing the book and 
Well, thank you. Yeah, I do think there have been some silver linings, and I hope that there is a broader awareness over time, and that this episode or episodes, because it will be on, on two of our podcasts, uh, can be you know a small part in, in helping to amplify. Hey, there is there are lessons to be learned um, from this that go beyond just pandemic management or epidemiology, Absolutely. though there are Absolutely. important lessons there to be sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's the thing. You know, there there's a lot of books and writings about. Yeah, where we went wrong in terms of the epidemiology, where we went wrong in terms of the uh, non-pharmaceutical and pharmaceutical interventions and all that stuff. And I wanted to do something a little different, which was explore the philosophical issues, which is certainly a big part of it, too. I didn't just want to do another Me Too book about these other aspects, but they're those, you know, the science. I, I guess I see it as three pillars and they're all important. There's the science where the, a critique of the science then there's the politics how did the politicians and the politics influence uh, public opinion and shape things? And were, were there any behind the scenes machinations? That's not my area. As I said, I'm, I'm not really into the conspiracy angle. I certainly know a lot of people who are, and I respect them. And then there's the philosophical angle, which is what were the ethical premises behind what went on? And in what way were they lacking or incomplete or misguided? And I think that's very interesting. And I, so I think that the people that I chose to feature in the book reflect that priority. You know, there, there was a couple of people who, when my book came out, were like, well, hey, how come I'm not in, how come I'm not in there? You know, and there are some big people that I did not feature because you can't feature everyone, right? There's 46 people that I highlight and there's, there was, have been a lot more than that in terms of um, interesting dissenting people. But, you know, we had to make some choices. I also wanted to... Um, have a political balance, as I think you mentioned at the beginning, because this is one of my priorities too. I didn't write this just for, you know, to preach to the choir, just for our side, so to speak. I really wrote this in order to, you know, have a menu to show the other side, like, hey, what, whether you agree or not, you know, these were some of our concerns. You know, maybe this will help you just understand a little bit. And I have to say that to date, I've been a little bit disappointed in that effort. Um, it's been a lot easier for me to attract attention and for my publisher, uh, the Brownstone Institute, to attract attention from so-called right of center uh, news outlets than from left of center news outlets. You know, I'm not giving up, but, you know, one of the things that I hope to do is, again, to just put my little drop of water in, in the ocean and um, contribute to the dialogue to speak to the other side, because, you know, it's a moderate book. It's not, doesn't get at all into conspiracies or vax or any of that stuff. It's really about the ethics and the psychology and the premises underlying all this. Uh, but it's a challenge to get, it, it isn't a challenge individually. I found that a lot of my friends who disagreed with me have read the book and they found it interesting, but it's a challenge to get, um, more traditional left-wing media um, to take an interest in, in this kind of counter-narrative uh, book. Right. Okay. So and I have, I guess I have two questions, but I may just skip the more serious one and go to a one. Oh, no. Why would you do that? <laughs> uh, well, okay. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so you, you said that in total it was about 46 people that you you mentioned in the book and you brought up and you highlighted. Um, I don't know if this is possible, but in maybe the most concise way that you can, what is maybe the one or two things that all of them had in common? I mean, because they all 
had a view of this thing, or at least, you know, that dissenting opinion. Um, but maybe at the core, what's the thing that they all had? Uh, I guess I would say uh, a strong appreciation of the costs of an intervention, mm. which like the mainstream uh, narrative did not. It was all about benefits and, and they undervalued, underdiscussed the cost. So I would say that if there's one common thread, that would be at a very, very sharp, strong, specific appreciation of the costs. I know as something that needs to be considered and discussed. That's very interesting because I, as soon as you said that, what that reminded me of is, you know, if you have a very strong consideration of the cost, um, you are someone who considers the future. You are mm -hmm. someone who thinks long-term and that is a sort of an indicator of a mature mind. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, I'm certainly not saying that, uh, that the people that would disagree with me are immature, but for it, you can almost think of it like, well, the difference between maybe children and adults, adults have a very, you know, we can consider a lot of our future. You know, we, we sort of negotiate with our future selves and, and we consider the cost of a lot of things. Children just simply do not, they, they, they don't have it. It's not there. Mm -hmm. um, that resonates with me because there's, yeah, I, I don't want to break it down as far as, uh, well, I, I simply won't. The, there's several divides in our culture, and I think one of them might be an impulsive sort of quick thinking solution to the now, the more feelings aspect, uh, maybe mm. the more compassionate. Mm. And the other might be something about considering cost of long term, or at least that's a component of it. So yeah. I completely, uh, I, I would say that's a that's well said, perfectly, and um, completely agree. So I guess now I would say... <sighs> Well, in the very, very beginning, I asked you about this whole thing and what was your, what was your experience with COVID? And you had, you had said that you were skeptical from the absolute beginning. And it turned out, and you said also that that never really changed. You sort of, it sort of stayed as is. Uh, I guess my question might be, have you, are you at the point or have you been able to just say, I told you so to anybody? No, that's not, that's not really my thing because mm. Uh, contrary to most people on my side, I mean, a lot of people that I've met at the Brownstone Institute, I'm less inclined to see it as a an issue of right or wrong or good or evil mm. than they are, mm. and more inclined to see it as a question of worldview. Uh, because again, if you're if you're starting off with the worldview that biological safety and biological subsistence is the supreme value and far above the other values well certain policies are going to follow so for me you know i always say yeah i, I don't even say that i'm right uh, you know it's, it's not even so much that like i sure i feel that i'm right but it's it's more just i feel that the world view that society is now moving toward is somehow regrettable and and we're losing a lot by adopting that worldview. So I'm not really inclined to say, I told you so. I mean, I know a lot of people are into that. Oh, I told you because there's, there have been a lot of studies um, showing say that lockdowns had a minimal effect. But the problem with that reasoning is it is a posteriori reasoning. You know, we can argue at the, at the time, the people didn't know that lockdowns would not have a measurable effect. So you can't really expect them to have had that knowledge. 
I mean, you could say, well, yeah, maybe if they had read this and that study, they might have an inkling, but it's still unfair to say, well, they should have known. So I'm not really going to go that route. And, and it's, it's just not logical to say, well, we have these studies now. And so therefore, you know, people should have known. So that, that's fair. what I, I always I have always from this is one thing that hasn't changed. I've always maintained from day one and continue to maintain absent, you know, different information that, that this boils it is a philosophy question it boils down to worldview and that, that's the point of departure that leads to one direction or another and that's the part that's difficult to discuss because it's abstract and politicians don't typically get into that but it's it's kind of the most important kernel mm. of all this so uh, very fair very fair um so in the beginning you had mentioned that it was mostly the people online that maybe say attacked you or did something like that I don't know if you were quite specific as to if anybody in your inner circle maybe had a, a different opinion than you. Uh, I guess my question would be, Have you? Ha, is anybody that you've been talking to that maybe did have the other side view, did they ever maybe come to see it as the way you are presenting it? Have they come over to your side and have you, or have you been able to convince is a better way to say it. Have you mm -hmm. been able to convince some people that maybe disagreed with you in the beginning? I would say partially. Yeah, I would say some people have have just chilled out a bit about the whole thing. And, and you know, looking back, they go, yeah, you know, maybe there was a little more to it or maybe maybe we overreacted a bit, stuff like that. I'm not sure if, you know, how many people actually jumped over philosophically. You know, I, I imagine that number is smaller. But I think that pragmatically, yes, some people looking back thought, you know, we, we did kind of go crazy about this a little bit. Um, but I think it's important to keep having these conversations. You know, that's, I understand that everyone's sick of it. I'm sick of it too at this point. But there's also, it, it was such an important historical time, uh, such a complex time. And if we want to have a chance of doing things differently the next time, we absolutely need to keep talking about it. And unfortunately, there are other people also who are writing really interesting books all of them with a slightly different angle. And so I think we are going to have a rich body of literature to draw on. Hopefully, you know, that's the best case scenario um, that will help inform our response the next time around. I gotcha. And this one's, this one's unscripted. Sorry, Mike, I was just going <laughs> to hop in just a really quick one because uh, I mean, at least here in the States and I'm pretty sure probably there in, in Toronto as well, there was at some point and I, it may have died off, but there was uh, talks about mass mandates coming back and mm. which just brought me up to thinking, you know, should this thing happen again, how do you, how do you predict the world might respond? Do you think we have learned our lesson? Do you think we would have, we will do it differently? Do you think enough people are just going to be compliant? How do you see that unfolding? Uh, hard to say. I, I think, unfortunately, there will probably be quite a few people who will comply. Uh, you know, Canadians, polite, and uh, everything not to be American, right? Uh, so I would suspect that there will be. But I also think it's not going to reach the same amplitude as it did the first time around. So maybe we'll have like a smaller wave and a, a shallower wave of this compliance. I hope so. Although, you know, having said this about Canadians being so compliant, which they are, boring, um, it was also interesting that the truckers' convoy 
came from Canada, of all places. You know, I right. think it may have come from the U.S. Or, but so I don't fully have an explanation for that, except maybe that sometimes it's it's the most compliant people in a way that you can only push them so far. And, and then something different is going to emerge. You know, there, there's going to be some an energy in the opposite direction. So that was a whole other very interesting chapter in this whole thing, which I, I cover in one chapter of the book. And this is where I got some pushback from some people that knew me personally, not in terms of, you know, that they said they weren't going to be friends with me anymore, but they they were so amazed that I supported the convoy. Um, you know, like, why? Well, I mean, I was, I'm vaccinated. Why would I support them? And there was this whole narrative that, you know, these were Nazis and all this stuff. And, you know, how can you, as a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, support this but the i felt as did one of the writers that i interviewed for the book that it was a much larger moment than just um a rebellion against the vaccine mandates i think that the truckers were actually standing for they were opposing just the totality of what was happening in canada so the vax mandates was a surface concern but it was a deeper moment. And I think in this Rupa Subramania, who I featured, she's a great Canadian writer. She she said that the, Trudeau missed that. He missed the moment, that it was something bigger. He was so fixated on, you know, vaccines. Uh, and then also my son went to the convoy with a few of his friends. And I interviewed him for the piece. Uh, because, again, I wanted to really hear firsthand, you know, there was, of course, there's going to be a couple of miscreants you know who attend protests there always are you know with their placards confederate you know confederate or whatever flags but that's not what it was about and he really gave me a sense of what the whole vibe was like at the event you know and he's certainly the last person uh to be you know racist or anything ist so it was nice to get that firsthand information as Rupa Subramanian, the writer, did as well, she actually went out and interviewed the um, people at the protest. She lives in Ottawa, right near Parliament Hill. So she interviewed them. She talked to them. And a lot of them, a lot of them were not white. A lot of them came from, you know, had, had immigrants, immigrant struggles. And, and so she got a truer perspective of what was going on on the ground uh, in contrast to these journalists who, you know, they would see one troublesome flag and then they would tar the whole uh, protest with that brush. Yeah. Yeah, this gets to something. I'm currently in the midst of talking with some researchers and journalists and putting out interviews for uh, fake news, which is, <laughs> to, to be sure, semantically overloaded um, yeah. and controversial. And But also, it's a it's, it comprises several different streams of research, and it's actually the thing on which I'm doing my dissertation, though I take, a, as you might imagine, a rather different perspective than many academics around some of the current research findings, let's say. Not all of it. Some of it's quite good. But there's it presumes too much, at least in many cases. Um, and I would say that to bring this kind of full circle with what we talked about earlier at the beginning, I asked, you know, hey, when did you first hear about this? One of the reasons we maybe were all a little ahead of the curve on this, both in terms of awareness about the epidemiological phenomenon as as well as the uh relative overstatement of the risks at the beginning, mm -hmm. was because we had access to relatively ungated information in the mm. form of digital platforms, et cetera, uh, outside the the front pages of traditional esteemed, quote unquote, authoritative outlets, for better or for worse. And I think that's true in the trucker protest, actually, as well. I, I don't know if it's that Trudeau missed the moment. I 
hesitate to speculate publicly anyway on <laughs> other countries' politics, but I suspect it was something like he was made to miss the moment. Um, there was a monk debate at the end of last year that gave good, did justice to the trucker protests mm-hmm. and the way they were kind of mischaracterized and caricatured in the press generally, not just the Canadian press, mm-hmm. uh, though there was a particular element of that, the Canadian press that was egregious. But I think that that's a, a theme throughout this is that people should seek, this is not me saying the do your own research meme, though I do, mm-hmm. I, I'm for people developing the, the skills and the tools to be able to do their own research. I think that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it is also saying, keep an open enough mind, uh, hold ideas loosely enough that you are receptive to other views on the world and it will help inform you on things better inform you on things from protests with eclectic groups of truckers etc internationally to global pandemics to even goings on at your local election because these these dynamics with information siloing and and gatekeeping and that kind of stuff they exist at, at many different levels and they're not impossible to overcome it's just sometimes a matter of individual will it's challenging because we're all attached to our pet theories and pet sure. perspectives, but I completely agree, 100%. Okay, well, I have uh, well, I have two questions, and then I'm I'm out of questions, but uh, <laughs> I'll start with the the more fun one. If you were to say to go grab a beer with one of the people, one of the forty six. And it were to be in front of a public audience, who would it be and why? Oh, probably Lionel Shriver. Okay. I love that woman. Yeah. She, Lion, and Lionel is a name that she assumed her, her birth name is Margaret. Uh, she's just, she's a, the author of the um, kind of horrifying, but very thought provoking book. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin, about a high school mass shooter. Um, that was made into a movie too. She's just such a free-ranging mind. Uh, she's an expat American living in the UK, and you know, a- again, I-, I love to see, especially women, break out of the feminine mold that you know we're supposed to think a certain way and uh, you know have a certain perspective on the world. And, and she, she's just, yeah, just that. There's no. Um, you know, there's no obstacles in her brain. She just, um, and, and I find that delightful. So I, I read her fiction as well as nonfiction. Uh, one of, she has a collection of essays out now called Abominations. So yeah, I would love to talk to her and see where that goes. Awesome. And then last one from me, the, this is a little bit of steel manning, uh, the other side of things, but it's also kind of in the grand philosophical, I would say, uh, ethos, though it's an unfair question to be sure. Okay. So all that pretext aside, at the limit, this trade-off or this tension between safety and liberty is fu- fundamental. It may not be the only fundamental thing, but is a fundamental aspect of the historic Absolutely. event that I, has been yeah. COVID. I always felt it actually was ultimately underpinning the whole thing. Yeah. Then if that's the case, this question I think is probably even more important. How deadly would a virus have to be in your mind <laughs> to justify the measures taken now? Yeah. And if you disagree with that framing, because I think there's reasonable ways one might disagree, 
how would you reframe it? I've thought about that, and I don't have a definitive answer. I have one consideration, which is that, and I'm not the only one to say that, that if a virus is sufficiently dangerous, people will voluntarily adopt these measures because everybody wants to protect themselves and their loved ones. We just do, including me. So uh, there wouldn't really have to be a lot of coercion. So, you know, it's maybe a little bit of an evasive answer because I don't have a definitive, I can't say, you know, an IFR of 3.7 or anything mm-hmm. like that. I just, I just don't know. But so that is, that's part of my answer anyway. You can't map the R naught, the IFR onto a third thing of like your lockdown function. No, I got you. Yeah, Fair enough. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I don't think anyone can, but I do think it is the question. With uh, which... That's not true. I can answer definitively <laughs> that <laughs> question. Uh, that's so funny. No, my, my answer to that question, Mike, I told you this before, but it was a little bit more brass, but uh, the, uh, yeah, because I, I thought about this too. I took my philosophy to the extreme and I thought, okay, if this virus were like if I caught COVID and the symptoms were everybody that I looked at spontaneously caught fire. Oh, okay, wow. That's, that's a pretty dangerous, <laughs> yeah. that's a dangerous, you know, uh, virus. And then my almost intuitively, my next thought was, yeah, but if my grandma had balls, then she'd be my grandfather. I mean, like it just didn't happen. That's such a, that's such a, what if crazy yeah. thing. And, and I'm like, okay, well, but it didn't. So, I mean, I know it, it's not the best answer in the world. It's just a little kind of tongue in cheek. <laughs> but yeah. But these are important considerations because the are. idea is that they you are. learn something going forward. Sam, you asked earlier, have you, you know, have you been able to kind of thump your chest and say, hey, I told you so to anyone? But I think the the question that I would frame that as is more like for the people who you might say it's like, you know, it's ex post faster reasoning. They didn't know they their premises were um, as good as they could make them at the time. But the question is, they were not as good as they could be, perhaps. And right. and right. so is there any sort of reflection on that, on the people who had that disposition or those predispositions? Because that is actually, rather than being able to like say, hey, I told you so, and you know, further burdening them with cognitive dissonance or, or entrenching right. them in their opinions to say, hey, well, there were some people who were ahead on things. There were some people who weren't. There are some people who got things right and wrong. And by the way, on all these major questions, I've stayed away from the COVID stuff for my podcast. I have nine big questions. I'm waiting. I've told Sam this before five years before I do a deep dive on any of them. But because this was much more of a, I do think this is an accessible, moderate read for people. It has a moderate disposition. It's not taking any sort of radical or conspiratorial perspective. But because of that, I think two things. One, at an individual level, people who would disagree with kind of the world we expressed here would actually appreciate it. It's accessible to them. It quite clearly is written for people who don't necessarily agree with these underlying principles or don't consider them as primary in a way that they might going forward or they might adjust how they think of things. And the second thing is you said you had more trouble getting traction with half of the political spectrum, um, at least as it relates to the press. I don't suspect that's by accident. There is a particular repudiation of a worldview in your book that is intrinsic to the book. Uh, and that worldview is most held by the types of folks who helm these those institutions. And it's unfortunate. Well, I mean, yeah, although I think that once, if they actually read the book, you know, <laughs> whether they agreed or disagreed, I don't think they would be outraged, but it's just getting them over that hump. You know, the 
like the gatekeepers in the left-wing media is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. Because my, my experience with individuals who have left read the book, even progressives, you know, has been fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's that's where the bottleneck is. Perhaps so. Um, again, I don't think it's a function of your book. I think that there's my suspicion, my hypothesis would be something like, mm. I think there's a difference between the folks we know individually in our lives, typically on average, yeah. and those who rise to the prominence of making editorial decisions in you know, mm, the papers yes. of record and yes. broadcast media. Yes, and that sure. they have a, there's a series of interests, again, not conspiratorial, but just genuinely, mm-hmm. uh, philosophically no, and yeah. financially, et cetera, that, that would make them less open to what I think is some pretty high quality, entertaining, and uh, what would I say, philosophically rich writing. Thank you. But no, you're absolutely right, because they would be scared that, you know, someone would dig up something about my publisher and then, you know, smear them by association, you know, all that stuff uh, that happens um, in the media and online. So yes, that all comes into play. Fair enough. All right. I am straight out of questions. Sam, (laughs) do you have anything else for our guest today? Not particularly. No, no questions. Only just the fact that the book um, was incredibly entertaining. And I found so much, like I said before, wisdom coming out of this. Um, I had to write some of it down and just stop and pause and and think about it because the way you said it again, I mean, I, I think back on my journey through COVID and it was almost, I mean, as you said it, almost every, every example that you gave, like, Oh, this happened to me. I'm like, Oh, well that happened to me too. And I think (laughs) What will resonate to so many people is, I mean, I think a lot of people had this and whether mm. they're courageous mm. enough to step out mm. and say it or not, or to kind of speak their, their mind about this. I think a lot of people went through the exact same um, experience. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a good point. Cause I, I recently presented to a reading group and I expected it to be a more hostile audience based on what the organizer of the group had told me. But then there was all these people who came forward with similar experiences. So I think you're right, which is, which is encouraging. Yeah, exactly. And um, to that, to that end, the book, I think is really beautifully put together. I really enjoyed it. And thank God it will be, as you said, you know, it's well received to people that may not have found their voice, may not have Mm -hmm. figured out, you know, how exactly do I need to say this? Do I need to, to frame it? You know, how can I can I kind of tell this, tell my side of the story? It's not just their side. It's a lot of people's sides. Yeah. And, yeah. and which which you bring out. So, I mean, it was such a good read. Um, I know I don't have any other questions unless you have any, anything you want to comment or kind of uh, plug or perhaps um, any final things. Is no, there any I mean, other books that you might have coming up? Well, uh, no, I'm not, no more books. I'm always writing essays, but I wanted to mention to people who might be interested that it's available in either print format, um, uh, e-reader, or audiobook. Uh, not narrated by me. But my publisher arranged for an audiobook version. You can find it on Amazon, You know, any Amazon stores, Lulu. There's also a Spanish edition uh, for Spanish speakers or learners. So I hope. You know, if anyone reads it and then wants to contact me to talk about it, I'm always really interested in dialoguing with people. Very good. Well, thank you, Gabriel. This has been fantastic. And until next time, folks, stay honest, stay rigorous and keep speaking freely. From Is to Ought is a Freedomcast Network production. 